Hi, I'm Maz Makani, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going good. I had my first shoot since the pandemic last week. Whoa, how'd that go? It went well. I can't really say what it was, but it was cool. And it was weird to be on set, and I felt super rusty. Uh, I will say it was mostly interview-based, so I got to use my iDirect, which uh, I... Uh, you love had, that. Had, you love breaking I, that thing out. I, I do love it, but I hadn't used it in like over four years. So it's a good thing that I've been storing it at my house most of this time. Yeah, no, it was, it was a cool project, and it was just kind of weird to be on a set and dealing with, uh, dealing with all the COVID stuff. You know, just dealing with uh, making sure that that people got, uh, you know, their COVID tests and everyone was separate and everyone wore masks. And we we did have a kerfuffle with a last minute replacement crew member who was not vaccinated. Uh, Very frustrating. There was somebody who I wanted to bring on, but also they were not vaccinated. And, you know, I, I don't think people think about this, but it's a little frustrating when the non vaccinated potential crew member says to you, I'll get tested every day. It's like. You aren't the problem. The problem is, what if a, someone walks in here with a breakthrough infection and you get sick? Like, I, I'm protecting you by not hiring you on this. And I feel terrible about it. You know, like, I want to be able to bring whoever on. So uh, if you're hearing the sound of my voice and you, uh, your crew, get freaking vaccinated. I ended up finding someone else who was vaccinated to, re- to, uh, to come in for that person. So uh, it's frustrating, though, because, you know, you want to just be able to go back the way you you were. I also like with all my uh, all my bitching and moaning about how people can get over their mask problem. I have to say wearing a mask all day on a film set like it it just starts to bug you a little bit. Just 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 a little bit. Not (laughs) not so much. Not so much that, uh, you know, I'm going to go have a temper tantrum about it, but uh, I don't prefer having to wear it. So look forward to the days when that isn't a thing anymore. I well, I think that it depends on how much laboring you're doing. If you're doing a lot of laboring, that that mask can be a real impediment to getting air inside your lungs. So sure, yeah, I mean it, it was it wasn't it wasn't that bad. I mean, it you're was, the director. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit different than if you have to carry 300 pounds worth of stuff. Okay, I'm just gonna say though, I helped everyone carry all the stuff. So <laughs> okay, fine. It was a small shoot. Hey, so Ben, what's our close focus today? Actually, you know what? Before uh, with that, wait, wait, we got to talk about who's on the show. Yes, yes. Who is on the show, Ilya? It's Maz Makani. I had a great uh, conversation with him about the, his new uh, Netflix movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, which is called The Guilty, and it's directed by Antoine Fuqua, and it's really good. I, I highly recommend watching it. Anyone with a Netflix subscription can can watch it now. Very cool. I look forward to hearing your interview. So for our close focus, we felt like It's apropos on the dawn of the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, being released in America. It's already released overseas. And this movie has been kind of a big deal in the world, shaping events in a way that you don't imagine a movie might. Hmm. Because James Bond movies tend to make a certain amount of money, and everybody knows this movie was finished like, you know, two years ago or something. But during the pandemic... 
yeah, Sorry, it, was, it was a while ago. I don't think it was quite that long. You know, it's shot by by Linus Sangren, who's a friend of the show. He was on friend of the uh, show. Yeah, it was come yeah, back was on, on Linus. Yeah, he was on back in May of 2019. And wow. uh, if I recall correctly, I think he was in production at that point or just about to start production. But because of COVID, it was postponed. And the movie theater chains were hoping that it would come out, I believe, about a year ago. Because it was originally supposed to come out last summer, in summer of 2020. That's right. And then it got and then it got pushed, and they were hoping it would come out in the fall. And when it didn't come out in the fall, roughly a billion dollars worth of income that these movie theater chains were expecting to get out of this movie just never materialized. And as a result, Pacific theaters went out of business. And, you know, here in L.A., we had Pacific theaters, but we also had the Arclight, which was owned by Pacific theaters, which also went out of business. And uh, it, it, it's an interesting story because, you know, it, it's just like one big tentpole. I mean, like a tentpole of all tentpoles. And it just started making the dominoes fall here. It was it, it, it's honestly been uh, I mean, it's not the movie's fault, obviously. But but it's just crazy how one movie can have that much influence. Yeah, it made one hundred and nineteen million dollars uh, this weekend overseas. Hasn't opened here. One of the you know arguably the largest box office market in the world. Maybe second only to I think, China. I think depending. I think China's still bigger. Yeah, China, China might be bigger. I, I know they had a, a opening weekend of a Chinese film that was <laughs> twice that. So yeah, but yeah, it's um it's a big deal and there's a lot of revenue caught up in that and if you just type in uh, you know no time to die you'll see headlines all across like you know publications like forbes forbes covered yeah. no time to die making money this weekend and you know overseas it's big business and i keep noticing you know that like even on youtube and stuff like i keep being served videos about how this is daniel craig's last outing as james bond and uh, famously after he made specter daniel craig said he'd rather slash his wrists than play james bond again later he kind of backpedaled and said that he was joking when he said that i'll take him at his word because he went and played james bond again <laughs> that's true arguably one of the more influential people in that role which is interesting because he wasn't really a star before he did it like he was known but he, he this made him a star whereas like previous to him was pierce brosnan who was already a star who took the role because uh apparently pierce brosnan was conceived and and raised in a test tube designed to one day play james bond like he was just destined one day pierce brosnan was going to be james bond that was destiny and uh nothing was going to stop it but uh, but daniel craig was kind of an uh, out-of-the-box choice for the role, but I will say, uh, as a, a kind of a fan of James Bond movies, I'd say Daniel Craig is my favorite. I think I I like him better than all the other ones. Uh, I think he's great. You know, the movies have been uh, hit or miss, like always. But it, anyway, it's it's been interesting to kind of like see the um, growing need from on behalf of the beast, on behalf of the show business beast, to be fed by yet another James Bond movie. It's it's like you know we they want their billion dollars that they're going to make from this thing. And they will get it. It's just delayed. Unfortunately for Pacific slash Arclight, it comes a little too late and they're not going to be around to get the benefits of, of James Bond one more time. But all the surviving chains are going to probably do really, really well because, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I think it's October 8th here. I think it's, you know, it's it's really soon. Yeah, it's it's yeah. this it's uh, as you're listening to the sound of my voice, it'll be like two days later. It's just it's very interesting looking at like, uh, for instance, as we're talking now, the sequel to Venom. Uh, Carnage that made ninety million dollars at the box office, and that was the most money made in a, a single weekend at the box office since the pandemic started. I can only imagine that that uh, No Time to Die is going to lap that pretty easily. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's that's pretty likely. 
and uh, Rami Malek is in it as well. So yes, uh, Rami Malek. These things always have the best cast. I think the only uh, James Bond DP that I'm aware of who we spoke to was Roberto Schaefer, who shot Quantum of Solace. I mean, obviously we spoke to Linus, but before he made this. But I feel like the Broccoli family who who makes these movies kind of just has their own way of making movies. <laughs> like they have such tight control over the James Bond movies. And they, in a, in a sense, almost have more ownership over the character at this point than Ian Fleming, who created it. You know, they, they have guided it. And it, it's interesting also to kind of look back retrospectively at a lot of the James Bond movies because sometimes they're leading the charge in terms of how uh, this kind of epic action, big budget movie is done. And sometimes they're following. And I feel like the Daniel Craig movies, which have been going on now since 2006, have been very influenced by Christopher Nolan and like his Batman movies. And the, the style of action and the way these movies look feels like that. Although they've slowly been kind of getting back to secret underwater bases and stuff that you expect <laughs> to see in a James Bond movie. So looking forward to whatever uh, weird stuff they uh, do in this next one. I agree. I, I think that it's going to be quite the hurrah because uh, Daniel Craig really has sort of uh, rebooted the series in a, in a real way. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see what they do next. It'll, yeah, and it'll who, the hell, who the hell follows him? Who the hell wants to follow Daniel Craig in this role? Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> we're going to find out real, really Oh, my soon, God. So. <laughs> well, like, seriously, I just don't even know what, what direction they point the thing in. If anything, action movies have become more hard-boiled since Daniel Craig took over. And so, you know, like, is the next James Bond movie going to feel more like a John Wick movie? Who knows? And, you know, of course, it's directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who I'll tell you that I, I thought Maniac was great. And I, of course, thought his True Detective was, was really great, too. So True Detective uh, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to this. It, it should be fun. Hey, you want to go see it? Yeah, I'd go see it. Yeah, like my wife totally won't go see it. So if you want to go see it, hey, off mic, let, let's, let's make a plan. Okay, we'll, we'll make a plan. All right, so hey, let's get to the interview with Maz Makani. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joining me today is Maz Makani, and uh, he is a fantastic cinematographer, and you may have seen uh, his work in uh, music videos and commercials. He's specialized in music videos for many of the top recording artists today, and also a laundry list of autosport, automobile commercials for you name it, including some of the most exotic automobile brands like Audi and Porsche and Jaguar. And and of course, he's with me because he just shot the brand new Netflix film uh, with Anton Fuqua called The Guilty. And, you know, Maz, usually we talk about a whole bunch of things before we get into talking about the movie, but I want to dive right in and I want to talk about logistics a little bit because I'm willing to guess that this production was not like any shoot you've ever done before. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's very fair to say. It was very different than anything that I've done before narratively. I mean, because I come from short format and, sh- and uh, music videos and commercials, which is sort of like wham, bam, punch, we, you know, we get it done in just a, a few days. You know, narratively, it's it's much different. There's, you know, usually with features, it's multiple locations, you have company moves, you know, it's it's minimum at least three or four weeks on the minimum of a shooting schedule, principal photography. This was much, much different. We were dealing with COVID. You know, for the most part, Jake is really in, in you know, is sitting at a desk. And, uh, and you're from, talking about Jake Gyllenhaal, the, the star of The Guilty. Yeah. Yes, Jake Gyllenhaal was pretty localized in at a desk and then moving from basically the communication center, which is the big room, to the smaller office and then the bathroom. There's a hallway. So it was it was pretty controlled. We were doing the we did the entire film on a soundstage. Peter Wenham built some incredible sets for us. And uh, 
you know, there were some challenges that were new and kind of interesting, but we, we were able to get through them and, uh, and finish the film three days under schedule. Wow. Okay. So this is a movie that's entirely made during the pandemic. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, when did you guys start and when did you guys finish if you finished, finished early? I believe it was mid-November of last year and we went on for 11 days. Wow. Was, so uh, 11 feature days. in 11 days. Yeah. Yeah. Whole feature in 11 days. Minus a couple of add-on days later on where uh, I went up and did some aerial work for the film. I did two days of aerial work. And then we had one day where we wanted to do some inserts of the, you know, of the police car pulling the white van over. So that extra day helped us do a little something outside of the original film, which is, you know, almost all set in, in, the, in the communication center. Well, well, let me just uh, quickly give our listeners a little bit of a, a synopsis of the movie. The movie follows uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, who um, is a cop who's been, let's say, demoted, perhaps, to a 911 service. And essentially, the whole movie takes place during one shift, really is just sort of like the tail end of, of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's shift. And the movie is, I want to say, people usually use the term, you know, contained thriller, or, you know, when they want to make a, um, a, a quick movie or a, a lower budget movie. This movie, maybe not necessarily contained thriller, but there was pr- plenty of edge of your seat performance going on here. Jake Gyllenhaal, arguably one of the, the, the best actors working today. He is in every single scene. He's in probably every single shot nearly in this in, in, entire movie. I got to ask you, you know, in the in the prep work for this, how do you break down a movie like this? It's got four locations. It's a contained drama in, in essentially mostly in, in two, two locations. Almost the whole thing takes place through a series of, of 911 calls. What is the what's the storyboard and your discussions with Anton Fuqua breaking this down and figuring out how the movie is going to end up looking? That's such a good question. <laughs> Antoine and I have sort of a, we have an aesthetic connection where he feels his way through in terms of blocking and coverage. And I have that same sort of ability where for me, the light bulb doesn't really turn on until I'm there on the day. And we, we, you know, whether it's the shoot day or just prior, which is, you know, the only time that I had with Antoine. Antoine and I had a day together before we started shooting. It was a few days before where we actually, you know, we were, were in the communication center. It was just me, Antoine and Jake. And Jake, you know, was, was going through his, his lines and Antoine and I just sort of walked around the space and he sort of pointed from this angle, from that angle. And those ended up staying, sticking uh, in terms of what we ended up, how we ended up shooting and blocking a lot of the, the coverage. The challenge in this film was that once that happened, once we blocked it, the next day I heard that Antoine couldn't actually be on set. This is where I was about to to get to, because uh, the press notes for this explain that you guys had to work out some sort of remote system. So Antoine couldn't physically be there. He couldn't physically be there. But he had, he did have a sort of a call, we called it the God's Eye perspective. We had a very wide sort of lens that was, you could see the entire room. So we could see the layout at any given time as to where the cameras were, where Jake was sitting, what the room looked like. So he had that perspective, but also fortunately we were shooting digital and with the digital format versus film, and we talked about shooting film and film didn't seem like the right way to go for a few reasons. And those reasons weren't the reasons that ended up helping us later. But for me, shooting three cameras always, it's challenging because when you shoot film, you have to light for film. You need a little bit more light. You need to be a little bit more methodical 
about how you're going to light something. And generally, you know, it's good, it's good for one or maybe two cameras. By the time you throw a third cam camera in there, the th third camera may suffer in terms of just being at a bad angle and it's not lit for it. So I, I sort of thought that the aesthetic of lighting the film more naturally, sort of ambient driven from the space of the office versus just Jake at a table. You know, Jake did have, we did have a few extra little lights for Jake. But for the most part, I really wanted it to feel real. And I think that, you know, that's Antoine's favorite thing as well. I think what Antoine and I share is this sort of concoction between real and raw and how it really would be versus, you know, and adding a little bit of sort of style to it and making it interesting and making it, making it our own. And so by shooting digital, it allowed me to do that. Firstly, just based on the ambient driven lighting scheme um, and Jake being lit by the monitors, which had a little bit of a fire flicker and then the desk lamp. And for the most part, that, you know, it's pretty much what I used. But also there's something about the digital format that has almost like a live feel to it, a little bit more live and urgent. Film has a tendency of making things a little bit more nostalgic and a little bit more, you lose a sense of time with film. Film is timeless and digital is a little bit more in your face. And I felt that this, because this film is in real time and it's live, that the sense of urgency where Jake is trying to communicate his words really felt a little bit more impactful. So that was the other reason for the digital. Now, I didn't, you know, we didn't know that Antoine would make it there, which allowed for a few other amazing things, you know, to have happened. Yeah, some wonderful technical synergy there happens some because, ha of course... happy accidents, yes. Yeah, because, uh, you know, of course, if you were shooting on film and you had a video tap and you were trying to send that video tap through yeah. the internet or whatever you signal, can't, you can't only do that when it's rolling and you, it's... Uh, <laughs> well, not only that, but video tap is just the nature of video tap is it's not it's nowhere near the same resolution as seeing no. a true a true monitor with a, it's a true signal coming straight out of the camera, which is either 1080 or 4K. So that allowed Antoine to really see all three cameras clearly and to see every detail of what's in the foreground, background, even, you know, expressions on the close ups of Jake's face. And shooting film, the biggest, the, the largest magazines you can use are thousand footers, which is just, you know, roughly 10 minutes of film. We were able to roll 20 minutes at a time. And so that allowed for really, you know, a, a good amount of, of dialogue and covering the script with three cameras. So it just was, that's one of the reasons why we were able to move so fast. I have a sort of a, a basic like how the sausage is made question. Actually, I have a couple basic how the sausage is made questions in regards to this because Antoine's not local. He is remote. And quite often I know when telephone scenes are being shot, it usually is, ends up being the job of a script supervisor because that other actor might not be there to read the lines uh, right. going on. Were these conversations maybe pre-recorded and was there playback happening on set so that Jake could react to the actual actors or was it really as a script supervisor trying with as little in notation as possible trying to, to read back these lines I have to imagine that there's a ton of audio work that could have gone on ahead of time but I don't know if it would have been helpful for the way that you guys shot it so no it was a combination of the three it was a combination of live actors on the other end of the line from all over you know all over the world they were in different cities and different countries. So that was, I'm sure, very interesting for the sound department. But but also there was some pre-recorded lines that he was responding to. And then there were moments where R.A.D. was feeding the lines of the other character for Jake to respond to. So there was a kind of a combination of all of all those things. Uh, was there a department that was involved in coordinating the remote feeds then to Antoine? It was a, a bit complicated. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think that initially they tried to do it via Zoom. 
and there was a lag in sound and it just didn't quite work out and it just it was very difficult I think for Antoine to sort of direct that way so then they had to come up with another strategy which was taking a, car, a fiber optic cable straight from the from the set over to Antoine's van which was a, across the street and that's oh. how he was able to see this thing in real time and synced up and to oh be gotcha able to, yeah. I didn't realize that he was local but unable to be on set. I thought yes. that he was on some other in some other state or place. So no, it, it, he was in a van with three great monitors and uh, you know walkie-talkie and a cell phone and and it was all connected literally via uh, you know a fiber optic cable. Is there a particular reason that Antoine was just across the street and not in the same building? Well, in, like, for a, COVID COVID restrictions. When I think you know, I, I don't know for sure. But uh, I think it had to do with the COVID restrictions. If somebody's okay. been exposed to uh, oh. somebody who, who may may have ah uh, okay, I didn't yeah. get that that Antoine uh, may have been exposed, and that was for the for the the separation. Exactly, so. that's why he was uh, across the across the way there. Wow, interesting. So uh, this this definitely sounds like a first to me. I assume that everyone else was safe and that nobody and nobody ended up getting COVID no, during the production? No, so. surprisingly, absolutely no. It was great. You know, everybody was extremely careful. There was a lot of masks, a lot of plastic, but it was at that time. It was sort of, they were very careful. They were very careful. Well, that's, that's really great. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so the movie, I think, is a tremendous success. And I think that uh, comparisons with other dialogue-heavy movies that uh, take place maybe over a phone in confined locations are, are going to be inevitable. People are going to bring up uh, movies like Locke. And of course, this movie is also a, a remake in some ways. It's a re- remake of a, of a European movie. Can you tell me a b- little bit about your preparation and how you kept... I mean, the movie feels very alive. It feels like it's never stagnant. There's a lot going on. When you were hitting your beats, figuring out you know what was going to go where, how are you... Uh, planning out where you're going to be more intense or where you're going to be less intense, where you're going to be closer, where you're going to be wider. How, how does this, uh, how does this, uh, well, the, I think the plan from the beginning, uh, Antoine and I both sort of agreed that, you know, in the beginning of the film, the lens is a little looser. We're a little wider, you know, the camera's very sort of relaxed. We don't really go in that close. We kind of stay a little further back and from a place of lighting, it's a little bit more relaxed. From a place of camera movement, it's really not that dynamic yet. You know, it's just having some dialogue with some random people calling in. And then as the story progresses, it starts to become a little bit more intense in terms of, for me, you know, I love, I love taking a, a wider lens and, and bringing it closer to, to the actor. And I think that with the new lens technology, you know, you couldn't use, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you couldn't take... 35 millimeter or 40 millimeter anamorphic lens uh, and shove it in someone's face. It would bend like crazy. And I think just the, the, the lens technology has come so far where now you can take a new lens, a new sort of higher quality lens and go wider and get closer to people without all the distortion. And so that was sort of what's ha- what had happened between, you know, when you, Jake moves out of the communi- communication center into the smaller room, the lighting sort of started interacting differently as he started getting more and more intense. The camera got closer without really going longer, just closer and wider was really <laughs> what I really felt was the most dynamic because he's right there. And it's almost like, to me, you know, there's something really beautiful about the old school way of, of getting close-ups, the way Tony Scott used to get close-ups, you know, where it was a super long lens from across the room on a 200 or 300 millimeter lens. and you're getting, you know, full face. You know, we did some of that. We did some of that through monitors and things like that. But there was something towards the end of the film that I thought, you know, it was really speaking to me as I looked at Jake and as I got closer and closer and adding, you know, I started adding diopters to the lens to be able to get even closer. 
uh, it just felt like you you know you're right there you're right there in his space and you're really seeing and the emotions are a little bit more visceral you know his emotional state is more visceral the his interaction with what he's listening to is is a little bit more intense a few other little things happen some happy accidents where you know in in the script he closes the blinds behind him which would have basically just made the background black and at some point um i just you know i thought let me just let me change the rules and and it's okay because we're looking at a lower angle theoretically if you take the blinds and you and you sort of point them down but you're shooting up from a low angle into the blinds if you open them just a little bit you could theoretically see through them into the other room and that ended up being a very very cool visual thing because now between the anamorphic lenses and this the little slats of you know warm firelight coming in to those slats from across the room from those big big monitors the live monitors of the LA skyline on fire there's something about that it felt like purgatory between between the fire through the slats and then also Jake with the red light and it really draws you in and you know uh, makes you feel his emotional state and I, I think that that's kind of was that was the sort of the plan from the beginning, and it just, we just we, you know we pushed it as far as we could. Yeah, well, you completely succeeded, and uh, I, I think that it's a really phenomenal look. Can you talk about the contrast at all? Because it's it's contrasty. This is a, this is a, this is a yeah, contrasty. I yeah, I can't I can't help it. As much as I try to not be <laughs> contrasty, I cannot help it. It's just in my you know. I can't help it. And I think Antoine is the same. There's something about, you know, when you look at, when you go back to Training Day, Training Day is a very contrasty film. Extremely. I mean, almost everything Antoine does. And I think that it's a combination of his aesthetic, my aesthetic, and Stefan Sonnenfeld's uh, aesthetic, who's the colorist who's been working with Antoine for years. We just, there's something about, you know, the way that I like to light things, I like to, the, the way I look at it is because I come from film, because I come from shooting film, and I was shooting very low ASA film back in the day, 50 speed ISO film on music videos, which really allowed for me to light something and sort of know that whatever I was not lit is just going to go to black. And that that's kind of how I came up. And that aesthetic, I, I sort of carried it through into narrative. As much as I try hard to, to, to not do that... <laughs> It just tends to do that. But in this film in particular, I feel that, in, you know, the way the film opens and as the film progresses, the contrast gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And that's, you know, partially due to, you know, the blinds and the black room and the dark room and, you know, the, the top light being red and sort of falling off a little bit where you could, where you're picking up only his eyes from the monitors. So you're seeing the monitors in his eyes. And I think that that leads to, that sort of helps take you into that purgatory space because, you know, when you think about purgatory and these things, you know, they're not bright and fluffy, they're dark and hard. And I think that sort of helped that, that aesthetic. But yeah, I mean, I think this my sensibility just keeps going towards a place of like where, you know, light is separated from one another and there's different color temperatures and it's just, you know, it's got bite to it. And that's just, I can't, I can't help it as uh, much as I try. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you need to help it. I think it, it absolutely <laughs> serves the story here. I think it, I mean, it, it, it's true. And, you know, you, you say purgatory. And now that you say that, it, it immediately clicks in my mind because uh, the, there's a little bit of that feeling. But, you know, the, the stark contrast and 
it's in color, but the color palette of this is such that sometimes you almost feel it's not desaturated, but the way that you're using black as a um, as a lighting, I, I want to say negative space that it's very much like a void, you know, really yeah. kind of falling into a void in, in, in moments, and which is a stark contrast to the opening and the ending of the film, like you know him going through all that, and then you know within a few seconds he's inside of this big sort of bright white bathroom where now he's completely exposed and vulnerable after he's you know sort of un uh, shared all of these things and he's come to terms with certain things you know that vulnerability in the big bright room now now he can't he's got nowhere to hide because it's you know and that was really sort of methodical that was i think that was antoine i mean from the beginning he wanted a white you know white bathroom and i didn't quite connect the dots until we got there and and i realized because of course like you know a cool black bathroom with black tiles of course is you know cooler to to photograph but but the, the white bathroom really does tell the story and i think that you know once i once we started shooting and ultimately when i saw the film i i understood why the the white bathroom in white needed to feel much brighter than the rest of the film because in that moment he's he's exposed and very vulnerable for sure. And it does feel like you've just entered the light after being in the darkness for so long once you finally yes. get, to, to get to that bathroom scene. Yes. And yes. and it's true. There's vulnerability and a sense of starkness in that bathroom stall that it almost feels cathartic. And, you know, he's kind of, you know, I, I'm not giving anything away here. He's kind of purged himself, you know, uh, psychologically as well as like physically right. into that in, into that bathroom. And all of a sudden, you know, we're all kind of left there going like, wow, we just kind of went through this whole journey and we only really see it from his perspective and almost never see anything else from the other perspective. And I think that it's a really powerful technique that is tough to pull off. You have to have really great talent all the way around to make something like this happen. And you, you totally pulled it off. What's the communication then like? You're on you're on walkies then with Antoine. He's talking in your ear. How, how is how, how's, uh, how, how's we, that going? <laughs> we would uh, I would one of us would call one another on the way to set. Mm hmm and talk about the day before and talk about what, what, what we need to do that day. So we did that a lot, Antoine and I. And then text messages were the way we mostly communicated. You know, mm. Text messages helped when we were just gonna move three cameras around. But when there was a, a, a situation where Jake has to get up and you know go over there or move around and we had to carry him from place to place, that required a little bit more conversation than just a text. <laughs> so I would just step aside and call him on his cell phone. And that's how we communicated. There was a there was a few times where we communicated via walkie. I, I'm not a fan of walkies. I don't. I really would rather not carry them around. I like to just have face to face conversations. But in this case, you know, Antoine and I just <laughs> we sort of see eye to eye most of the time. So very little communication was necessary. You know, mm. we speak the same language. So the text messages were our friend for the most part, and just you know, quick little conversations where I'd step away and have a have a have a bro time with him, and then. Uh, <laughs> and then back back it to up. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, back into the fray. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, uh, Maz, what what's next for you? I I know we're we're just about out of time here, but uh, are are you already lined up? I know the it's a really weird time right now. It's some some people are really busy, some people really aren't. Are, are you are you into something else? Or what, I'm what doing you, a docu. I'm doing a Lakers documentary with Antoine now. It's been you know about a year going going mm -hmm. strong. We have some more interviews coming up. There are a couple po possibilities. There's a script that I just read uh, that that's very interesting with a with a, with another very talented director, and we'll see how that goes. But in the meantime, it's been commercials and working on the dock. 
And, you know, I still do enjoy music videos from time to time, but mostly, you know, commercials and, and the documentary until something super cool pops up that, that sort of inspires me. All right. So uh, since we're just about out of time, if any of our listeners want to try to follow you, do you do any of the social media type of things? Yeah, are you on? Ab- oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where can people find you? My social media platform, it's Maz Makani. That's M-A-Z-M-A-K-H-A-N-I underscore D-P. Cool. So that's my that's my handle on the social media. And my website's just mazmakani.com. Excellent. Well, if you want to go uh, and and follow Maz here, uh, go to his uh, social medias and follow him. And uh, The Guilty, it comes out on Netflix like any day now. So by the time this episode is live, um, it'll probably be out for everyone to to watch. And uh, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed this. Thank you. All right, so that was Maz Makani. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was a lot of fun getting to, to chat about The Guilty. Uh, I can't wait to see what you shoot next. Awesome. And now, short ends. So, uh, Ilya, you know what time it is now. It is time for our patent-pending short-end segment. What is your pet obsession of this week? Uh, well, I knew this day would come. Uh, I, I predicted oh, no. it some manner of, of years ago when Are you, Aerie you're firing introduced. Me. Are you firing me? No, no, that's, okay. that's not it. You know, I've kind of had this uh, habit now of going to tech and particularly lenses and stuff for this short end. Uh, I know short ends, it's sort of my, you know, I, I get to dive into tech a little bit. The people over at Leica, which now lights for their cinema lenses, they, they rebranded themselves lights, uh, have announced the LC series of lenses and it's 13 full frame cinema primes but what makes them interesting and i think worth pointing out here in which i i I knew this day would come i just didn't know who it was going to be uh this is the first native and really only non-airy set of lpl lenses so everyone out there is like immediately tuning out going like what what why is this significant Who, who the hell cares what mount cinema lenses are in and you know of course it makes sense for for airy because they invented the lpl and they want to sell cameras so their cameras come out in lpl they make lpl lenses but for everyone else out there you have to use an adapter. You have to use an adapter to get to the, the, the airy standard from cameras to cinema lenses. And Lights is the first third-party company to come out with a, a full set of cinema primes, announced a full set of cinema primes, using the native airy standard. Now, I really thought that someone was going to do this. I wasn't sure who it was going to be. But by Lights doing this, they're totally going in. Uh, they're throwing their hat into the ring, into the LPL standard, which frankly, is a better standard than PL, but PL is basically the best thing out there compared to EF and all the other sort of lens mounts out there. So now that a third party has done this, I expect it's going to be like dominoes. You're going to start seeing other companies saying, hey, you know what? LPL is better. We're going to go this way and, you know, forget old PL. And, you know, I think you're going to start seeing manufacturers. I'm not sure all the people it will be. I don't know if it'll be Canon or Ingenue or whomever, but they're going to start making lenses that are going to be native LPL. And that's it. Not a PL version, which would seem like it's putting yourself at a disadvantage because almost every camera system out there is PL mount. But I think the reality is, is that you're going to be able to adapt cameras very shortly that that aren't already adaptable to LPL and cameras that hmm. are not adapted to LPL or can't can put that mount on there are going to go away at some point in the in the near future. And this is going to be the new standard, which and you're wondering, why is it better? It's just a bigger, better, more robust and perhaps most importantly, shorter flange depth. And that shorter flange depth means that you can actually build 
higher quality optics for less money. And so this new LC uh, set of lenses is actually pretty affordable as far as uh, light cinema primes uh, go. I think they're around 20,000 euros a piece. So, you know, still priced for rental, but they're relatively small, they're relatively light, they're relatively affordable, and uh, they all cover full frame and they're all T21. And you, you, you uh, said and how many euros they are? How much is yeah, that in dollars? It's like, you know, a little over $20,000, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like twenty. 2000 maybe then per, per lens it's it's probably not even that much probably 21.5 it depends on what yeah. the exchange rate is, is at the time hot ride cameras is of course selling the new lc lenses and uh, i'm very excited about getting some demo ones into play with i think they're going to be really really good you know lights is known for making lenses that are, are very sharp but also have a lot of character and they they play upon that leica history that the that the brand uh, you know holds and i have no doubt that this uh, that these lenses are going to be spectacular so i can't wait to see them and this has sort of been my obsession and uh i'm I knew that a company would do this. It wasn't just going to be airy alone in the wilderness making cinema primes in, in LPL format. And I'm I'm pleased to see that that Lights is the first company to do it. So you think this is going to like literally shift the power balance away from the age age old PL mount to standardizing a completely different kind of mount? I think that newer lenses are going to embrace this mount, and uh, that means you're going to have smaller lenses, more higher performance lenses or i should say easier to make higher performance lenses and you'll see it's only a matter of time before you start seeing other companies jump into this arena and say yes we can make a better lens it'll cost less it'll be smaller it will be better or i mean even if it doesn't cost less it'll then be more profitable for the lens manufacturer if they decide to go this way and it seems like such a a basic thing but lenses for still cameras for still photos have all the major manufacturers have shifted to this short flange depth all the you know the the sony's the the panasonic's the nikon's canons everyone is now making lenses with the shorter flange depth it was really just cinema who was the holdout here and they had these longer flange depths which is really basically the distance from where the lens attaches to the camera to the the focusing point which is the imaging plane which is the, the you know the digital sensor so the fact that um, they've now shrunk this means they can put the optics closer means that there's less of an air gap be- where that you know between where the exit pupil of the lens is where that the image is formed and where it's being focused appropriately at, at the the imaging sensor because it's, it's shorter all kinds of extra benefits can happen and now that lights has done it I expect we'll see some people rehousing lenses in LPL format I expect we'll see other brands popping up with LPL lenses and uh, sure enough that also means that everyone's cinema camera can be smaller and more compact because they don't have to have all the extra space that that was there before. So I'm going to ask you a really wonky question. Go for it. Because we haven't really ever had this this in-depth a conversation of flange depth here. Okay. And uh, I've heard you talk about it for sure. I always remember flange depth in terms of when you were making your PL mount adapters, how mm-hmm. the Canon cameras had a flange depth issue that meant that you had to actually modify the cameras to be a PL mount camera as compared to like the Panasonic cameras, which you could just slap an adapter on and use uh, the PL adapters. So did something technologically change? Was there some innovation that happened technologically that enabled lenses to have a shallower flange depth or cameras to deal with the shallower flange depth? Or is it just that it's been fashionable to have, I don't know how you say it, more depth in your flange until now (laughs) well uh one major thing happened and that was uh the film industry getting away from a photochemical medium from for recording images film and moving digital 
once that happened and also deciding they didn't have to have an it's optical been a viewfinder minute system since they did that it's, exactly. it's been a minute but uh once that happened then there was less need now there wasn't really a format that was shallower depth and as robust as PL that existed out there, whereas in the DSLR world, you didn't have to have that. And because there was no, there's no spinning mirror in cameras anymore, it was really just basically, oh, there's an, a bunch of extra space here. And some manufacturers would put internal NDs or they'd put, uh, you know, interchangeable optical low pass filters. They'd put different sort of filtration in there and would give the, you know, the, the end user the ability to, to, to mess around with that a little but really, ever since getting rid of film and not needing that spinning mirror means now that you don't have to have the amount of space you used to have. So everything is going to get a lot easier to uh, to deal with, potentially. That's interesting. So this is all just legacy uh, film camera stuff. Correct. This is, We've been dealing with that sort of distance. And, and the whole reason we had that distance in the first place was to accommodate the mirrors that were inside of uh, film cameras that would spin and take up a lot of space. And that whole 180 degree shutter that which I'm sure that you're familiar with and many other people out yep. there who uh, I mean, that's because there was physically a, a, a mirror that was spinning there at an at an angle that, that you know, 180 degrees uh, perpendicular. So if it if it wasn't at that angle, it would uh, adjust the you know, it would change the relative motion blur of the subject. So 180 became uh, became our standard mixed with the 24 frames per second. And that rotating mirror there, we had to have space for it. And now that that mirror is gone and everything is essentially electronic in, in cinema cameras, uh, yeah, there's there's no reason to hang on to this sort of legacy anymore, except for the fact that it was a really good mount and it was a good standard. But, you know, Airy made PL. Now their new LPL, their large you know format PL, uh, is equally as good, if not better. And it shrinks that space to the size that, you know, similar to like what Canon was doing with their cameras. And uh, the whole reason that we had to modify Canon cameras was not because of, the, of their flange depth. It's because they put all kinds of other stuff in the way. They put a mirror there too. They, in their, their DSLRs, yeah. they had a physical mirror. They had a Keurig in there, man. You could make coffee inside those cameras. <laughs> it was, I think it was cool. It sounded cool at the time, but, um, you know, then you got to clean coffee out of your camera all the time. I don't know where they, to go with this joke. Go on. They had a focusing screen. They had uh, EOS contacts, all that stuff had to be removed in order to make room for the rear elements of uh, peel mount lenses. And moving into the future, you probably won't see as many lenses with the elements poking so far out the back because now the, the position of the flange relative to the sensor is so much closer that you can probably put most of those optics, you know, now uh, inside the mount or further forward. So there's some some nice stuff that Airy did with the new format, and I expect that it's going to catch on. Maybe not immediately. It's, there's always some lead time. It takes a, a while with lenses, but I, I expect to see other players throw their hat into this arena here in in not too distant future and not just have it be an option for a lens that was actually designed for another format. Well, I hope that our listeners have learned a lot of important lessons about <laughs> flange depth tonight. <laughs> this is so, this is so nerdy camera, you know, lens yeah. nerd type of stuff. I, 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 I apologize right now to no, all no. of our listeners who were like, man, what, what the hell did I get myself into? Okay, actually, the official price here looks like it's around 19,000 euros, which probably is about 20,000 US dollars. So there you go. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, pretty cool. So Ben, what's your uh, what's your short end this week? So I stumbled across a pre-visualization tool that I had never heard of before, and uh, I've been kind of poking around in it, and I don't see myself, it's a subscription service for 30 bucks a month, which to me, it's like, I don't know, all of Adobe is 50 bucks a month. 
uh, I just have a hard like maybe if I had if I had a big project I would subscribe for the months that I was working on the project but it's called Backlot and you can find it at backlot.studio I downloaded the free demo as you know, I always talk about whenever some kind of funky previs tool comes around. I still own a copy, although I really never use it, of Frameforge uh, 3D Studio. I'm a big fan of Hollywood Camera Works Shot Designer app, which I use. I have been using for every shoot, probably for like the last seven or eight years. I love it. I love it so much. This looks a lot like, um, Backlot looks a lot like they've taken some of the GPU accelerated graphics kind of stuff and they enable you to sort of from the ground up design everything about your movie and they've built a bunch of sort of standard environments like woods and stuff like that but you can also build your own sets and their demos are just amazing looking I mean it is literally video game level graphics but being used to uh, you know design shots to do basic blocking with actors and, uh, you know, to decide things like focus. And I mean, like you can even get into the level of your grade and stuff like that. Like it's, it's pretty insane. And it also spits out as shot designer does overheads and stuff so that you can use it practically on set. To me, the reason I've always gravitated to shot designer, which is like the simplest way to sketch up a, an overhead and say like, okay, Camera goes here, camera goes here, camera goes here, dolly goes this way, actor walks in this door, actor goes out that door, and not rely on anything looking like a final product. It is literally just an overhead. That's all you're building. Uh, the reason I've always gravitated towards that is that I don't want to spend 17 hours designing the interior of the New York subway or what you know, uh, a desert, whatever the hell it is that you're you're shooting in. I don't like doing that because that's not it's not what I'm there to do. The pitch of Backlot, and I cannot tell you one way or the other if it's accurate, is that you can build these environments really quickly. You can drop your characters into it. You know, they have like built in walk cycles, and it's definitely using video game level graphics to do everything. And their demo stuff looks, looks amazing. I don't have a shoot that it would be appropriate for that I'd be ready to go with. They have like all of the cinema cameras, all the lenses, everything in there. So you can get photo accurate depth of field. And like, you know, if you have these two walls and a set design, you know, you know what you're going to see in the shot. You know, like it, it seems really, really helpful. And uh, all the video on their website is extraordinarily sexy. Like hmm. you would, any filmmaker would be uh, super stoked to have this quality of previs. And the fact that it's only 30 bucks a month actually isn't, is, is, is kind of amazing when you think about it. You know, like 10 years ago, I was working on a project where they had like the top of the line previs at the time, and it does not look as good as this. Hmm. Um, wow. For so, a dollar a day, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing I feel like, you know, there's certain things like Adobe where I'm subscribing to it, you know, year by year because I use it all the time. There, There is probably never been a month that has gone by that I haven't used, you know, Premiere at least or After Effects or any of the Photoshop, any of the things in there. This is probably something I would only use while I was prepping a show. The downside, of course, is that it probably takes a little poking around to just get the hang of it. They have a timeline editor that kind of functions in the same way a timeline looks in, in whatever software you're using to edit in, but it appears to be designed very much with like 
a real filmmaking workflow in mind. So uh, if anyone listening to the sound of my voice has messed around with Backlot or knows anything about it, I'd love to uh, hear your opinions of it and we'll read them on the show. But as far as I can tell, and again, I've just downloaded the free trial and kind of poked around a little bit. It really does seem like a pretty amazing tool. Like Frameforge is, is an awesome tool, but I remember trying to like design a shoot years and years ago with it. And it's just like, how many hours am I going to spend building this set and detailing it? And it's like, I'm not, that's not, I'm, I don't have any expertise in this and, and I find it tedious and, uh, you know, I also kind of found it clunky in regards to like moving the camera around. And even though it gave you real depth of field and stuff like that, I found it to be just a little bit on the clunky side. This looks like it's leveraging much newer graphics cards and stuff to do this stuff in, in real time. So anyway, yeah, if, if you've used it, if you know anything about it, if you are one of the people behind Backlot, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Cool. I think that sounds great. Well, hey, Ben, I think we've just about reached that time. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get more Ben Rock in their lives? Oh, and who wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> you can go to benrockonline.com, and that's where you can like see my reel and find all my uh, links to my many social media connections. And uh, several people have been adding me on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff like that or following me uh, on Twitter and you know messaging me and saying that they listen to the show. So thank you for that. Uh, we're, we're always excited to talk to anyone who listens to the show. We, we, uh, we definitely do it for the love of the show. That's true. Not, not about the money because there (laughs) is none. Yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. That's where I spend uh, most of my time, uh, hotrodcameras.com. I, I got to say, I got to spend a little time in the theater, though, uh, yesterday, and that was a lot of fun. So In your in the theater at Hot Rod? Yeah, I almost never get to do that, but I, I did get the chance this weekend, and it was, uh, it was pretty great. D- did you watch something awesome? Uh, it was mostly just clips of a bunch of things, but yeah, it was uh, it was great. It was, you know, uh, tooling around. I watched some of Mad Max Fury Road and a bunch of other things, so it was great. When uh, as as we start going into Oscar season, we should uh, we should bring our Academy screeners over there. Oh, 100 percent. That that's the place to do it. One hundred percent. Of course, I think That'd it's all awesome. going to be streaming now. So, but but you know, I I got a browser with the Fire Stick. You can type in you know twenty six yeah, yeah. characters or whatever it is, and you know watch. Well, that like way last too. year, they started using a thing called Screener Passport. So hopefully mm. they'll use that now. But that yeah, on any kind of smart TV, you can you can bring that up. So I could like bring my login and uh, check out some Oscar movies. Yes, indeed. And I also put on like Black Widow for a minute. I had a couple of, uh, uh, you know, guests from the company, uh, from, from clients who were in, they wanted to poke their head in there and they're like, oh, can you put on Black Widow? And I was like, sure, pick a scene. So, uh, nice. and they streaming in 4K, it looked really good and sounded really good. So yeah, that, that was fun. Anyway, you can find me at Hot Red Cameras or on the socials at Ilya Friedman. That's, uh, that, that's where you can usually find me. Hey, we should probably uh, throw out before we do our thank yous that uh, because the Nate Watkin episode has just uh, gone live for Assemble.tv that uh, there is a discount code of Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D. If you would like to sign up for Assemble.tv, you can get a month free. Don't forget uh, the code Cinepod. Man, we should put that at the beginning of the show. I think in the next episode, we will put that at the beginning we should put of the that show. That's, b- that's before we start talking about flange depth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone tuned out. We started talking about flange depth, and it was like, oh, man. There, there, no, so you, many are you kidding, things. man? The kids love flange depth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, obscure tech terminology. Uh, yeah, they, they all love that. that that's, that's what they're going for. That's, that's really why they're tuning in. Uh, all right. So, so Ben, let's thank some people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, firstly, let's thank Ben Katz for making you and I both sound less like idiots <laughs> with his, his skills at editing. 
Yes, that would be great. Uh, secondly, we should thank Kaze Alatrakshi, who probably, for all I know, created the Backlot app and just didn't tell me because he's always <laughs> doing everything all at once all the time. Uh, yes, he probably did. <laughs> and uh, and lastly, and never leastly, Alana Cody, our intrepid, amazing, uh, ass-kicking producer. Uh, we have a bunch of amazing interviews coming up. One that had an actual live, I, I hope it makes the cut, an actual surprise for me, like uh, a moment that genuinely shocked me in the middle of an interview. Holy crap, it was very exciting. And as a result, we ended up doing another interview. Huh? Yeah. Oh, Can't yeah. beat that. No, can't beat that. that and that's that's, be that's that's the film that I believe opened this week, but uh, we'll be talking about that probably next week. I think we something. will. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, all right. Well, then, until then, thanks very much for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.